the reading tonight is from Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three. The second Second Peter chapter two, verses one to three. It reads, "But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening, and I'm very pleased that you're able to be with us, even though the weather is a little threatening outside, and it it feels like winter, doesn't it? But still, it's uh, very comfortable here as we have this opportunity to worship together. We're very grateful that we have the uh, blessings that we have for the wonderful benefits of a building and the opportunity to worship and and not be concerned about government molestation or anyone interfering with our worship, and we're grateful for that. And I I amen Marvin's prayer, and I'm very grateful for each one that's led us in worship both this morning and this evening. Thank you for the singing, beautiful singing tonight, as it always is. I always enjoy worshiping with this fine congregation and being a part of the singing and the prayers, and now we're ready to enter to this portion of our worship service. We're studying tonight a, a rather odd type of religious view. We're looking at world religions as a Sunday night seminar, and some of this aspect will be preaching, and some of this aspect will be more of a lecture, and and we try to combine both elements and understanding this particular subject. When we were studying Judaism and Islam, uh, and then of course comparing that as I do with each subject, Christianity, Uh, we have some familiarity with these particular religions. Uh, Each of them borrow uh, from Christianity, and you have matters of uh, Abraham being referenced in the Quran, and you have Jesus being referenced in the Quran, and each one borrows uh, from Christianity and modern-day Judaism as well. So we're rather familiar with those matters. Some of those elements involved in these religions are quite different from what we understand, from New Testament Christianity, but yet they are somewhat uh, familiar to us and they're not as far afield from us as some that we have studied. For example, Hinduism. Hinduism will come to play in our study tonight. But I want to talk about Buddhism and my point that I'm making is that these religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, are far afield from where we are. They're way across the gulf, so to speak, from our way of thinking. They have a different way of thinking, and one comes from the other. Let me explain a little bit tonight the history of Buddhism. Uh, One could spend all of his time talking about that particular matter, but I'll try to spend just a few matters and moments discussing the nature of it. This will help us understand something of where this particular religion is coming from. And then again, I want to compare this with what we know New Testament Christianity to be. Now, I have no no concern whatsoever when I talk about these particular matters 
whether it be Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, that you're going to run out and say, okay, I want to be a Buddhist tonight. I have no concern about that whatsoever. If you feel that way, please, let's get together and talk about it. And we'll study the Bible and realize what the Bible has to say about it, and we'll obey it. Yet at the same time, I think it's important for us to understand what these particular religious views are. It is never my intention to win an argument. I'm not here to win an argument. My intention is to pursue the truth. My intention is to look at every idea that's out there in the marketplace of ideas and then weigh that up against the truth of New Testament Christianity. It is never my intention to make fun of, to make sport of, to malign, to denigrate individuals or to shame them. That's not the intention at all. If you get that impression with regard to our discussions in these Sunday night seminars, then you've misjudged us altogether. Our intention is to pursue the Word of God and to grow in faith by it, to so study God's holy Word that we can come to understand that it is the truth of God, that Christianity is not just another religion among other equally valuable religions out there in the world, but that New Testament Christianity is the religion of God. In our Bible reading tonight, You'll notice how that Peter warned about false teachers going out there into the world. And I'm sure that those who first read this particular matter from Peter took that very seriously. And we should take that very seriously as well. If we looked out on a map tonight, if I had some slide, and I don't have any prepared, but if we had a slide prepared, we could look and see where Hinduism has swept through the matter of India, a huge nation of people. And then as you go north into China, Buddhism, Nepal, go further east, and Islam takes over. There you go to North Africa and parts of uh, the Near East. Go on further over into Asia. And then you see how the Buddhism is there. Go into the Far East and look there into Japan and those particular areas, how that Buddhism now has become a very prominent religion in those areas. If you take Islam... Hinduism, and Buddhism. You have much of the world's religious convictions. So with that introduction tonight, we begin to study just very briefly, and it's an inadequate study, I'm the first to admit it, a study of Buddhism and the challenge that it poses for New Testament Christianity. Now I'll try to talk a little bit about it, so much so that you might be able to get a handle on this particular religious view. And as I spoke about my purpose not being to win an argument, my purpose is more intent on what can we say to a Buddhist friend to help him understand the truth of Christianity? How can we approach him? And what can we say and how can we reason with him to help him understand what the truth of the matter is? When we talk of the matter of Buddhism tonight, I have really two questions in my mind. And when I was doing the research on these particular world religions, I was thinking about two questions in particular about Buddhism. I'd wanted to know who Buddha was. And I wanted to know why is Buddhism and Buddha so influential with regard to this particular worldview and religious view. And I'll try to answer both of those questions tonight. It's not so popular here. We live in East Texas. And I don't know that we're going to have 
a Buddhist come into our field of experience. I don't know that we're going to walk up and see about it, but in parts of the United States, it is popular. In parts of the world, it is the predominant religion of the world. Siddhartha Gautama was a prince in India, born to extreme wealth. His father was king of India. India is an ancient culture of people. We think about Egypt as being an ancient culture. We know so much about the Egyptians because they wrote their history down, but the Indians did not do that. The idea of Islam, the idea of Hinduism, Buddhism, India, these particular words are related to each other as they come from the Indus Valley in India. They're all related one way or the other to each other in regard to the matter of the word Indi or Indus, Hindu, Buddhism, India. His father was the king of India, extremely wealthy. He wanted his son, now Prince of India, to take his place one day. And so he gave him a very sheltered type of childhood. He wasn't allowed outside the palace. He gave him the best pleasures of life. He gave him the best environment to live in. He gave him the very best clothes to wear, the very best food to eat. He was extremely wealthy. And he gave all this to his son, the prince. And his prince, this prince was raised in this great wealth all of his life and never got to go outside the palace and see life the way it really was. The prince marries. And he insists on going out and seeing the world for the first time. And so his father, the king of India, decides, well, what I'll do is I will route a path for him to travel, and those who will bear him will carry him down the path, and then I will see that everything in the path is cleaned out, cleaned up, everything is the very best. There'll be no poverty there, there'll be no disease there, there'll be no aged there, everything, everything that he will see will be only the best, because he'll be king of India one day trouble of it is it just didn't work and this particular prince Sardatha was shocked at what he saw he saw poverty he saw death he saw dying he saw decay he saw things that were going down in value they they were of no great value anymore they continued to be decaying and deteriorating and what he saw was of shock and awe to him because his father just couldn't clean everything up. And now he began to see the world as it really was. Sardatha was a Hindu. He was raised a Hindu. The Hindu religion, of course, was the religion of the people of India at the time. And that was the kind of sheltered life that he lived. And as a Hindu, he believed in reincarnation. Reincarnation, you and I have understood and we've learned already in our studies about Hinduism, how that a person is born and that a person lives and that a person dies and that he comes back. And it's a type of filtration system where if you live a good kind of life while you live here on earth, then you come back to a higher life. If you've lived in a, if you've lived in a bad life and lived in a bad way, then, of course, that's going to be part of your karma when you come back to this life again and you're reborn. And so Sir Datha Gautama 
He saw this and he believed in this recycle of life and he saw the great suffering and he saw the great plight of the people who lived there and he was shocked at the experience and was horrible to him. And he realized there's no getting out of this cycle. There's no getting out of this circular type of life where you're born, you live and suffer and die and reborn again and live and suffer and die. And it's an endless cycle over and over and over again. Some people, because of the very good life that they've lived, may come back to a higher caste system. Hinduism. Some people, because of the bad things that they've done in life, may come back as a lower caste system. They may even come as no caste at all, as an untouchable. A person who takes care of all the garbage and the refuse of life, takes care of the dead bodies and corpses, that kind of thing. No one can have anything to do with them. It's a horrible existence, and there's no escaping it. Some people in the Western world kind of locked in on this idea of reincarnation. They think, hey, that's not such a bad deal. I'll come back again, and this time I have a bigger TV this time. And I'll come back in the next life, and I'll have a bigger house because I'll get better and better, and it'll be a better deal. And so reincarnation to them and their way of thinking, not such a bad deal, and they kind of like the idea. But not everybody has such a good life. A life to some people is a terrible thing. It is terrible suffering. And there's no escaping it. It's endless. And it goes on and on and over and over. And Sardatha Gautama saw this and said, something has got to be done. Hinduism has no escape for this constant cycle. This cycle whereby we die, we're, we're born, we live, we suffer... And we die again, and it's all over again, over and over and over. There's got to be another way. And so Sardatha Gautama decided, I'm getting out of this. And he renounced his position as prince. And he took a vow of poverty. And he joined a band of ascetic monks. Aesthetic simply means that they refused any kind of pleasure. They refused any kind of physical comforts. They refused food. They, they lived the most meager type of lifestyle. And for six years, he traveled from place to place as an aesthetic type of monk, denying himself any physical pleasures of life, denying himself any kind of comforts whatsoever, and nearly died in the process. He says, there's got to be another way. And so he comes up with his middle way. Now, if we were involved in this in a more serious vein and had more time to talk about it, we'd start examining the Buddhist doctrine of the middle way. Basically, the Buddhist doctrine of the middle way is the idea that there's got to be a middle way between these two extremes. One extreme is the tremendous wealth that I've experienced, he says, and the other extreme is the tremendous poverty that I've experienced, almost to the point of losing my life. There's got to be another way here. There's got to be some kind of ground, middle way, some kind of ground between these two extremes. And he decided the way out of this is through meditation. I will meditate 
and I will be able to get myself out of this realm of pain and suffering and not have to go through the samsara, which is the cycle over and over again, which people have to experience as a means of their religious life. Siddhartha, through karma and meditation, becomes the Buddha. Buddha simply means the enlightened one. He is the first one. And he's found the way out between these two extremes by means of the middle way, by means of meditation. And by means of meditation, he's be able to get out of this constant cycle, the samsara, the cycle over and over again, whereby we suffer, we live, we die, we're born again, we suffer, we live or die. It's over and over again in a cycle type of way. And he says he's found his way out of that. And for the rest of his life, he spends his time going from place to place, teaching people how to do the same thing, teaching people how to get out of this cyclical type of lifestyle which is a horrible lifestyle for some 40 years he spends the rest of his life trying to help people with regard to pain and suffering and poverty and life as he saw it as a Hindu he now is a Buddhist Buddhism comes from Hinduism and Buddhism begins to take over in certain sections and portions of the world as I tried to make mention of it. What I'm trying to do in a very simple way, as best I can understand it, I'm not an expert in this matter at all, is to help us understand where they're coming from, to help us understand what he's trying to say, to help us understand what this matter's all about. I found this story. It's a Buddhist story. But I think it helps us understand what this particular religion is trying to say. This Buddhist, uh, he finds himself walking on the ground and his feet hurt. And he decides, if I could cover the earth with soft leather and walk on the soft leather, then my feet wouldn't hurt. But it comes clear he can't afford to carpet the entire earth with soft leather. So what he does is he makes shoes out of soft leather. And now by walking in these shoes, he no longer feels the pain. He no longer feels the ache, and his feet don't hurt. His purpose as a Buddhist is to teach you how to make soft leather shoes. So that you can go throughout life without having to feel the pain, without having to experience the particular matter. And the means by which you can do that, according to them, is by means of meditation. You sort of get out of yourself, and you no longer have the desires. You get the me out of the picture, and now you're beginning to think about other things until finally you reach an enlightened state like he did, and you reach what is called nirvana. And the nirvana is simply a state of enlightenment whereby I no longer think of myself and I can move forward. And I'm no longer encumbered by the problems of life and the uh, pain of life and the suffering of life. All of life is suffering to the Buddhist. But you've got to get out of that. And as you get out of that by means of transcendental meditation 
and by means of mind control over these particular matters, there in turn, you've reached your nirvana. And you've broken the cycle of the samsara. Birth, life, suffering, death. Birth, life, suffering, death. You broke the cycle. You got out of it by means of enlightenment. Buddhism. You know, it's a far-fetched particular matter for us from the Western world. But I say once again, my purpose here tonight is not to ridicule or to make fun of anyone. My purpose here tonight is to pursue the truth and to help others do the same. And so let me compare, if I can, just what the truth is compared to what I've just tried to describe in a few minutes. Now, there's a lot more that needs to be said. And if you're conversant with this particular idea and this theology, if I can call it that, you're going to say, well, you have oversimplified this particular matter, and you'd be right. I haven't talked about the different kinds of Buddhists there are. I haven't talked about Zen Buddhism. I haven't talked about the different kinds of Buddhism that we could describe in the field of our experience tonight. But I've tried to give an overview of what Buddhists really believe, whether they be Zen or whatever type of Buddhist they may be. And so, as I always try to do, I want to compare this with what I know about God. Because I think with every world religion, you can really come to understand who they are and what they are. If you can understand their view of God and, and come to understand how they see God and how they understand Him, it really helps us understand where they're coming from and what their position really is. And what can I say about Buddha and Buddhism and God? Because according to Buddhism, there is no God. In fact, according to Buddhism, there's not even a home for God. Buddhism is within you. Buddhism is the idea that you can solve by your own present mental preparation and deliberations and get yourself through this difficult phase of life by removing yourself and by removing the desires of your life and getting the I out of the picture. Some Buddhists worship Buddha. Others are very atheistic in their approach. It's not a matter of religion with them. It's a way of life. It's a matter of exercising a particular kind of life whereby I'm getting out of these particular matters and I'm no longer considering that way of life or the problems of life or the sufferings of life, the difficulties of life. But to the Christian... I know God does exist. Turn with me to Psalm 139. I, I think about this passage quite a bit, especially when it comes to this matter of God. And let me study it just briefly with you and let me present the Christian position with regard to, to God. And I've mentioned this passage for you already, but I, I like Psalm 139 and particularly about verse 7. You and I have read it before. Psalm 139 and verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, verse 12, darkness and light are alike to you. I read that paragraph out of Psalm 139. I took about verse 7, going on through about verse 12, and you'll notice several things about the passage. Now, there's any number of Bible passages we could go to with regard to the matter of God. But here's a Bible passage which really talks about, one, the personal interest that God has in me, that I can't run from God, and that day and night are alike to God. What I do, I am not doing uh, in the absence of God's omniscient gaze in my life. He knows what I'm doing. He knows what I'm thinking. There's no way that I could run from God because God is everywhere at all times. He knows everything about me. He knows what I freely will choose to do. You'll notice how personal God is in the passage that I've read tonight, Psalm 137, 7 through 12. How great God is. How knowledgeable God is. How that there's no way to run from God. How omnipotent God is. How all-powerful God is. That is totally foreign to Buddhism tonight. In fact, to Buddhism, there is no God. In fact, there's... Nobody's even at home in a Buddhist concern of things. And the love of God. For God so loved the world. The Buddhist picture of life is a dismal picture of life. And all it focuses on is get out of the suffering. Do what you can to make soft leather shoes so you don't have to be involved in the suffering of this life. That's all life is to a Buddhist. Life to the Christian, on the other hand, is the fact that he's created in the image of the invisible God. The Buddhist has no concept of sin, none whatsoever. You remember when we were talking about Islam and, and we were talking about the forgiveness idea and concept that the Bible teaches compared to what an Islamist is trying to say. In Islam, there is no forgiveness of sin. The best thing a Muslim can do is to try to build up enough works, good works, that offset the bad works so that he can go to a very sensuous type of heaven, paradise. That's the best he can do. It's a works type of religion. The Bible's telling us, though, that the truth of the matter is that sin is a confrontation and offense to God. And that it actually separates God from man. Isaiah 52, 59, verse 1 and 2. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. The Bible is making very clear, though, that we cannot save ourselves. It is the gift of God that we need. Romans chapter 6 and 23, which is eternal life. And in turn, sin and condemnation are the wages of sin, which is eternal condemnation and death. That sin is a transgression of the law of God, whereby we've gone beyond the will of and the Word of God, and we've committed sin. There is no such thing as, this is totally foreign to Buddhism. This is foreign to Islam. Much of the world tonight does not understand the problem of sin, and only the Bible helps us understand it and gives us a proper understanding about the matter and offend to God. 
sin. Because of God's great holiness, man freely chooses to sin and violate that holiness and offends God in that process. Buddhism tonight with regard to man. Just think about that. To the Buddhist tonight, man is worthless. He is of no value. In fact, the body which a man has is a terrible hindrance to him because it is an element of suffering. God created our bodies, breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. God took earth, there in turn formed and fashioned man, and as he did, he makes and creates a living soul from man. And he is the apex of the creation of God. He is the very one that is the crowning touch of all the creation and all of the Garden of Eden. When you look at all of the creative work of God, the greatest aspect of that creative work is man himself. And look at the value of man. So valuable that God sends his son to earth to live and die as a man and is raised from the dead for the benefit of man. To the Christian, man is of extreme value and life is intrinsically precious. To the Buddhist, man is essentially worthless. He's of no value. Somehow, you've got to think your way out of your present condition. Somehow, you've got to think your way out of the circular type of situation which you find yourself in. And only the enlightened ones really accomplish that and do that. Whereas the Bible, on the other hand, is saying God created man in his own image. Man is important. So important that God gives man the responsibility of worshiping him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 and verse 24. It's very important that God and man come together. Because God wants this relationship with man. It's very important for him. He loves man. And in turn, man should grow in that kind of loving relationship with God. And he desires that for us tonight. Buddhism, reincarnation. It's a process that goes through over and over and over again. That you're going through this particular kind of lifestyle. You're going through this particular matter. And yet the Bible is teaching us that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that cometh the judgment. I read facts about Buddha's life, the enlightened one. And I don't want to spend all of my time reading all these particular matters, but, you know, some of them describe him as having lived 530 times, 42 times as a god, 85 times as a king, 24 times as a prince, 22 times as a scholar. According to his reincarnation view, he keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. But the Bible says that's not the way it is. The truth of the matter is, it is appointed unto man once to die, and man will die. Death is a separation of the physical from the eternal. The Bible tells us when God spoke to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And it must have come as a great shock to Joshua when God told him about Moses. My servant Moses is dead. And now you have the responsibility of leading the children of Israel throughout 
the conquest and cross over Jordan and I will lead you. And I will give this land to you just like I'd promised to Moses. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. For they shall rest from their labors. We die. We leave this physical walk of life. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 tells us that we'll be resurrected once again. From what? The dead. A general resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation. And all men then will face the great judgment of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And all men everywhere will have to give an account for what they've done in this earthly walk of life. And some will face a second death. Being cast into eternal condemnation. There into a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. And some will receive eternal life. The great judgment will not be a matter of deciding whether you're guilty or innocent. The great day of judgment will be a day of vindication and explanation and sentencing. That's the biblical view of the matter. There is nothing in the Bible or anywhere else that would foster, prove, hint at the idea of souls coming back, living, dying, souls coming back again, living, dying. It doesn't happen that way. So let me ask the question, because it seems like I'm always interested in this point. Where's the proof of all this? I'd like to see some proof on this. Maybe that's just a Westerner's way of thinking about things, but that's the way we have to think. Where's the evidence for all this particular matter whereby I can think my way to an enlightened state called nirvana, whereby souls recycle themselves over and over again. Where's the evidence for all of this particular matter? Did Siddhartha Gautama give us some kind of document, some kind of evidential statement, whereby he says, now look at this and examine this and see if that's not the true way, and let me help you with that? No. I'm just supposed to take his word for that. There is no evidence. They do not offer evidence. They don't feel the need to offer any evidence. I'm just supposed to accept it. But that's the way it is. And I'm to be making soft leather shoes for myself so that I can go throughout life without having to suffer pain. Buddhism. Now let's turn that coin around on the other side and think about that just for a minute. Is there evidence for New Testament Christianity? It abounds. God has given us so much evidence that it boggles the mind. And no matter how intelligent you might be or how far you might go into your academic pursuits of life, you'll never be able to plummet the depths of all of the discussion, all of the evidence that's given for us with regard to the reality of God. The sonship of Jesus Christ. The inspiration and authority of the Bible. The evidence goes on and on and on. And the wonderful thing is, God invites us to investigate that. 
Use your mind to investigate those matters and prove these matters to be sure and true so you can grow in faith and confidence and trust in God and in God's Word and in the Christ of God. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. Examine it. Look at it. Evaluate the evidence. And when you do with objectivity, you'll come away with the proper perspective. Christianity is the truth that comes from God. And it's not just another religion among other equally valuable religions. When you begin to compare it with what you see with regard to the matter of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, you soon are going to see that there's absolutely no comparison. That's the way it always is when you compare New Testament Christianity carefully, objectively. You're going to find that it proves itself to be above and beyond mere human production. Now, I know I'm making assertions, and I'm making statements about that. The course of my discussion tonight is not to prove that, though I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to engage myself in discussions of proving by means of fulfilled prophecy, or by means of the life of Christ, or by means of the inspiration of the Bible, the authentic, the credibility, the integrity, the character of what the Bible has to say with regard to itself and God and Christ. I'm happy to be involved in those discussions. I asked a person one time who was involved in a cult. I said, you got your own Bible there? They said, yeah. Do you have any maps in your Bible? And he asked me, he says, what? I said, have you got any maps in the back of your Bible? In the back of my Bible, all these maps and I can see where Jerusalem is, and I can see where Bethlehem is, and I can see where Egypt is, and I can see where the Jordan River is, and I can see where the Sea of Galilee is, and I can see where the Dead Sea is. Here's a map, and I can go to those places. You got any maps in your Bible? Of course, I already knew the answer to that. He's involved in a cult. The place names in his Bible do not exist. There are no maps in his Bible because there's no way that these particular place names line up with the things that are here on earth. It is fanciful. The point that I'm making is an important comparison between New Testament Christianity and world religions. They don't add up when one puts the microscopic value of investigation upon them. The evidence is not there. And I raise the question again tonight, where is Buddha in all of this discussion? Where is the objective evidence whereby I can go and look at that and decide for myself, can I see whether that's true? Can I corroborate that with other pieces of evidence? It's not there. But it's there with Christianity. God has not left himself without witness and he's not far from every one of us, Acts chapter 17. That we might seek God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Buddha died at about the age of 80. Jesus died at about the age of 33. But the difference between Buddha and Jesus... Jesus was raised from the dead. 
and now lives at God's right hand as king over his kingdom, the New Testament church. Buddha teaches that life is a drudgery, and it's something to be endured. Christianity teaches that life is something that can be enjoyed once one is in Christ and as obedient to the gospel of Christ. The repentance and confession and baptism, one can begin to enjoy the forgiven life. A life whereby one has dealt with the problem of sin God's way. And through objective understanding of the scripture realize, the blood of Christ has washed away my sins. And I'm no longer under the problem of sin and guilt, which is the greatest problem that I have. Now suffering is a problem. And even there the Bible helps us through those particular matters. And sometimes when our suffering gets to be so great, we turn to great passages of Scripture such as Psalm 23 and other passages, Psalm 100, and passages like that which give us confidence and give us joy and, and helps us through times of suffering and trial, the Bible is telling us. And even at that, when the suffering is intense, it's nothing compared to eternity. Whereby Revelation chapter 7 all pain, all suffering, and every tear is brushed away by the omnipotent hand of God in heaven. Do we suffer in this life? Yes, we do. Buddha's answer is no answer. To try to ignore it, disassociate yourself from it, disassociate yourself from other people is no answer. The Bible has the real answer. And that is obedience to the will of God. Well, there's more that needs to be said. You've listened very patiently in my discussion of this particular matter. And I want to say once again, I have no ill toward anyone that espouses this particular view. But I have to say, it's a false view. And does not answer the real problems that we face. The Bible does. And I encourage you to respond to that gospel tonight. And devote yourself to Jesus Christ as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but my being. He's the only access we have to God. And let us with loving kindness try to teach others of the importance of obeying the gospel as I'm trying to do tonight. And I encourage you to come and obey it. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.